It's lovely to be here with you. If we're yet to meet, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at church, currently one-armed pastor. <laughs> I was at preschool um, talking to some of the kids, and I was saying, guys, I had to tackle some lions at the zoo to protect the kids from being eaten. And then my three-year-old daughter walks in, and she goes, no, Daddy, you fell out of the tree. So... That's what happened, kind of. <laughs> I was, I'd put her in a tree and I was climbing up into the tree to get her out and I managed to sort of like pull my arm out as I came down and dislocated the shoulder. If you're into gruesome details, we can talk more later. But we are here, school holidays, this year at the Bridge Church, in the year of goodness, we're considering the good life. Different facets of life that are essential and important and looking at the scriptures, especially Proverbs, but the whole thing, to consider what does it mean to live faithfully to Jesus and to live with, um, with a life of abundance. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. How do we live in that fullness? And so today we're talking about wealth. Now I am, you know, name the elephant in the room. We're in one of the most wealthy places in the world. That's, that's a reality as we speak about this. And so when we start to talk about wealth, some of you are going to be sitting here going, Man, go get them. Let's do it. Why don't we just be more generous? Why don't we just sell everything we've got and go out into the desert and live in the wilderness, John the Baptist style, locusts and honey, that's all we need, you know? Some of us are those fire brands. And then the other half of us are a little bit more measured and we think, well, can't we have a longer view of generosity and think about how wealth is not actually a problem as long as our hearts are pure and how can we be long-term generous in a strategic way? And you know what? You've both got good points. Both got good points. What I've been struck with is how full the scriptures are of teaching, of reflections, of proverbs, on wealth, on greed, on money. It, it is really so intrinsic to the teaching of scripture. And the reason I think that's true is because wealth, uniquely apart from other things, affects the state of our souls. Wealth apart from many other things that have many different effects in our life, it, it affects the state of our souls. Right at the beginning, we've got Adam and Eve, the first humans placed into the Garden of Eden, and God beautifully walks alongside them. He, he offers them this garden that's paradise. He says, look, everywhere you look, there's flourishing, there's beauty, there's, there's abundance. It's all yours. There's just one small rule, tiny rule. This tree here, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. I think because God wanted to lovingly walk them into a knowledge of good and evil rather than them taking a shortcut and seizing it for themselves. It's actually out of the love of a father. One rule, don't, don't eat from this tree. Now that moment of eating this fruit is the root of all sin. That's where sin and brokenness enters into the world. And we can talk about it from so many facets, but I think one of the key ones is we see just that first springing forth of greed and a desire to want more. It says that the fruit was pleasing to the eye. I could, I could do with some of that fruit. The knowledge of good and evil, that sounds pretty great. Even the serpent, as he deceives them in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so right at the beginning, brokenness enters the, the world as humanity seeks more than it already has, as contentment is no longer present and greed takes hold. That is the beginning of our situation. 
And it's the, the story that the, the scriptures then speak to from every other page. And it goes all the way through. Jesus had some of the strongest words to say about greed and the love of money and of wealth. He did not pull punches. If you come to Matthew chapter 19, you can pull it up if you want. Otherwise, I'll take you through the story. There's a rich young man that comes to Jesus. Rich young ruler in some translations. And he comes with a really great question. He comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? He's a young man, presumably in a formative early stage in his life. And instead of, you know, seeking after this and living his life over after that, he comes to the teacher and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? This is a good question. He's seeking after good things. And so Jesus says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Just, just do that. No worries. He goes, well, which ones? And Jesus sort of starts to list off some of the Ten Commandments and some of those key things. Do not steal. Be faithful to your spouse. And all these sorts of he says, I've done it. I've managed to keep those. And you can, you can almost see that there might be a little bit of glimmer of hope in this guy. He's like, all right, I'm on the right track. I can do this. I can do this. But he then says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Tricky question to ask Jesus for sure. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, notice that the call, the demand is perfection. If you want to be perfect, Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The way the story ends is haunting. It says this, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Wealth is unique because it affects the state of our souls. In this case, it was an obstacle to this man being able to leave his life behind and come and follow Jesus. Jesus tells another parable in, in Luke chapter 12. It's in your Bibles when you flip open to the, the parable. It says, the parable of the rich fool. It's not, it's not going to start and end well for this guy, right? He's already described to us as the rich fool. As Jesus is about to teach this story, he says this, Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he tells the story about this, this farmer. He's, he's sowing his seed. He's faithfully laboring in the fields. And he has a harvest that no one has ever seen before. It's incredible. It's just like something crazy was put on this, this, this field. And it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. If he had a profit margin, it'd just be out the window. This guy is, is abundantly flourishing. And he looks at all that he's gained and he goes, oh, man. I have so much money, but my wallet's not big enough. You know, that's kind of the tone of this guy. It's like, I've got these barns, but they're just normal person barns. I need to build some big barns, some real barns, some serious barns. And so he scraps them down, builds some new bigger barns so that he can fill it up. And he's contemplating his future. I can settle down. I can, I can live it nice and easy. I can live a life of comfort. And the story ends where God demands his life that very night. The reality of wealth is you can have the entire world and lose it in a moment. And Jesus finishes that story and he says, This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. He's not holding punches here. Paul the Apostle teaches in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 to 10 those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
which is a nice sermon for your Sunday evening. Gosh. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Why is wealth so dangerous? Because it gets hooks into your soul. Those who have the love of money have all sorts of evil springing forth in their souls. And they, in their desire for money, Paul says, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Like a good poison in the hands of an assassin. You don't realize that you're dying until it's too late. And you fall. The parable of the sower as Jesus described his ministry. The word is being sown here and there and here and there. And there is a particular seed that finds itself surrounded by thorns. And Jesus describes this seed. He says, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Wow. How do you feel? Should we take communion? You know, let's, just, let's get the band back up and praise the Lord. That's strong, right? It's really... It's real. Where's the hope? What do we do with this? Come back to the rich young man. Matthew chapter 19. After that exchange where he walks away sad, Jesus says, truly I tell you, in Matthew 19, 23, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I was at the zoo yesterday. Camels are larger than you think. I don't knit, but needles are smaller than you think. He's saying it doesn't happen. These two things do not go together. The, the rich do not enter the kingdom of heaven. And rightly, the disciples hear what he's saying. They, they look at Jesus and they say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says incredible words. This is so important. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Isn't that incredible? With man, this is impossible. There is no hope. There is no future. You, you are condemned in your greed. But with God, we can, we can probably get that camel through that needle. We can, we can make that happen. And, and the New Testament is full of stories of people who in great wealth, blessed by the Lord, Come and live rich, abundant lives with Jesus because they were the camel that made its way through the needle. Do you remember that guy in the Bible called Zacchaeus? We usually remember him because he's like described as a really short dude. It seems like a weird fact that we learn about him, but we, we're introduced to him in, where is it? Luke chapter 19. And he's described as a short man who wants to see Jesus but can't. So he climbs a sycamore fig tree. And while he's kind of like perched precariously in the tree, which is really worrying me right now about my shoulder, he's looking down at Jesus. And we don't even get a dialogue. It just talks about them seeing one another. He comes down from the tree and he comes forward to Jesus. This man is a chief tax collector. He has made his wealth through defrauding the people of God. He's slimy. This is not someone that you would ever expect to enter the kingdom of God. But he comes and he looks at Jesus, and this is what he said. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. It's incredible. This man of not only wealth, but of questionable occupation, shall we say, confronted with the Lord Jesus, comes and gives himself over to him. Because 
what was impossible for man is possible for God. And that camel finds its way right through that needle. One of my favorite people in Scripture is a woman named Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Paul the Apostle and Silas, his his comrade in arms, have come to Philippi, a, a prominent Roman colony in the ancient world. And they find themselves beside a river with a few people. And Lydia is there. She's described to us as a dealer in purple cloth. Okay, cool. But when you get weird details in the Bible, there's usually a reason. We, We realize that purple was the color of royalty. And so this is a woman who's a dealer in fine cloth. She, she's, she's got a business of luxury. She's, and so she, as she encounters Paul, she's described as a God fearer and she, she hears about Jesus and she gets converted. She turns her life to Christ. It's incredible. And after that moment, she, she brings them back to her home. It says that in Acts 16 that she brings them to her house and her household is then consequently baptized. This is incredible. In a uniquely patriarchal moment, we've got this wealthy woman who owns her own home in, you know, in Mossman. And she holds this place in her home as the head of her household, such that as she gets converted and leads her family and those who are a part of her household, they get converted too. It's incredible. A wealthy woman who finds herself confronted with Jesus, turning her life to him. Why? Because that camel finds its way through the eye of the needle when the spirit quickens us, awakens us to the reality and beauty of Jesus, so that even those things that lay in our heart cannot keep us from him. Without God, there is no hope. But with God, Jesus draws us in. It's beautiful. What I love about Lydia is right after that encounter, Paul and Silas are doing some things in Philippi, continuing their ministry. And there's this demon-possessed girl who keeps following them around. And she um, has, in the past, been known to tell fortunes. And so she's got some, some, some handlers that are using her to make money off of her demonic ability to tell fortunes, which is, you know, make of that what you will. But she starts following Paul. And if I'm being followed by a demon-possessed girl who can tell the future, I've got some questions, right? It's the thing. <laughs> Paul, he just gets annoyed. And he turns around and just expels the demon. And this girl walks free. Again, a moment of the grace of Jesus. But her handlers, not so happy. And so... Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. They're languishing in the dark, but instead of grieving the situation that they find themselves in, it's midnight, and they're just singing hymns. You can just hear the other prisoners being like, shut up, this is the seventh time of amazing grace. Do we really need to do But that's where they find themselves, just praising the Lord. The Lord, through an angel, opens the doors, brings this incredible prison break, and they walk free. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because when they leave in the dead of the night, where do they go? Lydia's house. It says that the brothers and sisters were there. And you just get this this little detail that seems like Lydia, having turned her life to the Lord, has taken hold of her wealth and is using it to facilitate the well-being of the church. The brothers and sisters are there at like three or four in the morning because she's sheltering them and looking after them. As we read the book of Philippians, which we did tonight, presumably this, this church is meeting in her home. Because it's not wealth that's the problem, it's this, it's this love of money and this greed. And so having had her life changed by Jesus, she turns it all towards him. It's incredible. It's incredible. Many have pointed out that Paul's words that we read out earlier from 1 Timothy 6, it's not, it's not money that's the problem, it's the love of money. And it's a good point. Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
griefs. It's not money that's the problem. It's, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Whether we actually have little or have much is not the question. It's about the state of our souls and, and what we're longing for and where we put our hope and where we find our security and how we go to bed at night resting that we're going to be okay the next day. And so I, I've got to ask you and I've got to ask myself, what am I longing for in life? What am I seeking to take hold of? What matters most to me? Because the scriptures are clear that greed, the love of money, it will kill you. It's very clear. It's very concerning. Where does it leave us? Well, God's a God of the impossible. He doesn't save according to tax bracket. Praise the Lord. Saves us all. We all breathe the same air. We all breathe the same spiritual air of the Spirit. He, he saves us independent of any of those details of our life. Whatever it's in the state of our souls, the greed that finds itself there, it's like we're caught in a riptide, but God doesn't care what brought you there. He just swoops down like a wonderful lifesaver and lifts you out and brings you back to safety upon the shore. It's incredible. This is the gospel. You've done nothing to deserve it. You've done everything to not deserve it, and yet the love of Christ is enough for you. The love of Christ is enough for you. But if you've been saved from a riptide and been brought safely to the shore, if you then step up 10 minutes later and go swimming in the exact same spot and get pulled out again, do you know what word we would call you? You're a fool. To be rescued from darkness and brought into life, to have that part of our souls, that greed being brought forward to show this is not the way of life. We are to live for Christ. We need to recognize that this is the business that we need to deal with God. We cannot go back into that worship of mammon, this God of, of more. Instead, we need to rest entirely in Christ. We need to take stock of our souls. So let's go to those readings that we had beautifully read. Philippians chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles open, that would be great if you could flip with me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Very famous statement. You know, the last verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Beautiful verse. My favorite basketball player, Steph Curry, has them on his shoes. I'm sure that's why he gets more three-pointers than anyone else. Beautiful. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is a, a wonderful truth that when we experience and face obstacles and difficulties that that Christ is with us and he strengthens us. That's a big part of it. But the context here is not just dealing with the problems of life. The context here is contentment. Look, read with me, verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. This is what I've got underlined here in my Bible. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We've got abundance on one side. We've got poverty on the other. He's experienced both. And he says the secret to finding your soul's satisfaction in Christ and not in your circumstances is that Christ strengthens you. That Christ strengthens you. That Christ, I can do all this through him who strengthens me. He's saying I can weather every financial downfall, every moment of need, even times when I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. 
those moments where I'm not sure how God is going to provide for me in this next season, he's saying, I can weather it because Christ strengthens me. I think we get that. But he's also saying the flip side. He's saying, when I have abundance, when I'm living in prosperity, when I have more than I need, when my life seems to be falling together in all earthly circumstances, he's saying there's still something that needs to be weathered here because there's a danger that I might drift from Christ. He's saying I can still be content in those circumstances too because Christ strengthens me. Whatever state you find yourself in life right now, we must find contentment in Christ and Christ alone. Because at the end of the day, our riches in this world mean nothing. But Christ means everything. The Proverbs reading we had picks up a similar line. I, I really like this. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 to 9. I love this. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Isn't that good? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much abundance and I might disown you and say, who is the Lord? I don't need you anymore. I've got everything that I need. Or I might become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God that consumed by the, the, the direness of my circumstances, I might do things that, that don't honor you, God. Wh- what do I do? We've got to find our Goldilocks middle, right? That bowl of porridge that's just right. Just give me my daily bread, God. Just give me my daily bread. And he is speaking about physical bread. There, there are Christians throughout all of church history, even prior to Jesus, who have not had enough to eat. And he's saying, trust in the Lord. Lean upon him and not in your own understanding. He will provide for you. But there is this rich sense of, of imagery in daily bread. When we look backwards, we, we come to Israel just after they've, they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've seen incredible miracles. They've watched the seas part and the the Egyptian army follow them and then get drowned and they're brought into safety and they get to the other side and in Exodus 16, they go, so we don't have any food. (laughs) And they just, despite all that they've encountered in God, they just, it says they grumbled and they complained. And I'm just expecting God to just be like, all right, well, I'll try again with another nation that's a little less annoying. But he doesn't do that. He's so tender with them. He loves them so dearly. And instead he provides them with food. In the morning, when they wake up, there's this bread called manna. I don't know why it's called manna. It's called manna. And there's, there's enough. In the evening, there's quail. I mean, that's kind of fine dining, right? Bread and bird. They've got, they have everything that they need. God provides for them every single day. There's this little detail that I think is so helpful. Because he says, only take enough for today. Some of them didn't want to take as much for the day. They were a bit concerned that there wouldn't be more bread the next morning. So they gathered and gathered and gathered and they brought it with them and they kept it in their tents and they woke up the next morning and there were worms in it. Kind of like a primary school boy's lunchbox who we forgot about and left it under the bed. Has anyone been? It's only me that's been there. There you go. Worms growing in their bread. It's not good. (laughs) What's going on here? Well, one, God is providing tenderly for his children. They can depend upon him. But he's teaching them something. You need to lean on me. You need to depend upon me because I am what you need, not abundance. And I think that's what Proverbs is saying to us. Neither poverty nor riches, if only we can find ourselves entirely content in God and God alone. We look forward in this idea of daily bread and Jesus picks up the language, right? In in the Lord's Prayer, the disciples come, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Matthew 6, give us today our daily bread. 
Again, many saints throughout history have used that as the backbone of their existence where they would find sustenance. They depend upon the Lord. But again, this is, this is positioning us to say we must position our souls such that, that we never fall into abundance that leads us away from Christ, but only give me my daily bread. One of Jesus' most powerful metaphors for himself in John 6 was to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry or never go thirsty. He says this in, in chapter 6. He says, hold on, I can find it. I am the bread of heaven who gives life to the world. We don't need physical bread abundance. We need Jesus. We just, that's all we need. Whatever your life looks like, we all are going to one day stand face to face with the Lord Jesus. And the only thing that will matter is whether he has loved us and saved us and called us his own. Let me finish with a a beautiful verse. This is one of those verses that you want to get tattooed if you're into that kind of thing. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I love that. The infinite, eternal, almighty Son of God, perfectly content in himself, the God who is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in perfect unity. He had nothing to gain. And yet, in Philippians 2, he he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a slave And he was obedient even to death on a cross. He took on poverty so that we could be rich. His riches are the only riches that matter. And so whatever state of life we find ourselves in, look to Jesus. If we're in need, look at his poverty. Look at his pain. Look at all that he gave up and know I have everything that I need because he went through that. If we're in abundance, look to Jesus and know, I don't ever want to hold on to what I have because he's given it all up for me. I want to to live a life of generosity and one that's fixed upon him and him alone. Whoever we are, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, this is it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let me pray for us. Father, your scripture is challenging. Thank you, Lord, that it is saturated with grace. Thank you, Lord, that each one of us is an example of a camel that has somehow miraculously made its way through the eye of a needle. Please, God, help us to learn this secret of contentment. That if Christ strengthens us, we have all we need. Lord, please help us to find our riches in him and him alone. Please help us to rest, not striving for more in this world, but seeking more of you. We pray this in our Savior Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper tonight. A moment to tangibly taste the God who became nothing that we might become rich. Part of that is that we come honestly, recognizing that we're broken, that we're sinful. I am. I know that you are too. So we're going to say a confession, a prayer of confession together. After that, we will sing again. 
while we're singing, the, the bread and the juice will come around. The bread is gluten-free. It's just grape juice. Um, hold on to it. At the end of that song, I'll jump back up. We'll take communion together. So let's pray this prayer of confession. Dear Father, my sin is ever before me. Idolatry plagues my heart. I am consumed with thoughts of self-promotion and self-service. In my deepest parts, I doubt that you are God, and I want to rule myself. I cry out to you, Father, only you can deliver me. Show me the love of my beautiful Savior, who gave up this glory and even his life, that I might be delivered from idolatry. Show me that in every season of life, Jesus is better in sorrow, in victory, in comfort, and in riches. Jesus is better. May the work of Jesus ever stir me towards radical, joyful obedience. May he be my reason for living and my eternal source of joy, hope, faith, and love. Amen.